0: Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton finance professor, Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies. Is Hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The
1: reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a
0: special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show.
2: Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, and I'm in today for my good friend Jeremy Schwartz. We've got a great show lined up, but before we get into that, we have some wonderful guests in the studio today. We have Ryan Curlin, who I work with at Alpha Architect, and we have two guests, Matt Topley, who is the CIO at Fortis Wealth, and Don Riley, who is the CIO at the Wiley Group. For the first half of our discussion, we're going to talk about portfolio strategy for 2018. In the second half of the discussion, we'll be talking about the advisory business and the future. We actually have Siegel on. We're going to go uh, real quick, we're going to switch to Warren Professor Jeremy Siegel, who is the author of Stocks for the Long Run and the Future for Investors. Professor, what's your take on this week's market activity?
1: Pretty amazing. I've just arrived back, traveled for 24 straight hours from Patagonia down in southern Chile. Uh, They're happy in Chile, they're happy with the copper price, Uh, they're happy with uh, their recent election. uh, and so, uh, they're, um, they're definitely, uh, they're definitely bullish on things, but I was following the markets here and, uh, well, all I can say is, wow. I mean, um, and I mentioned this in previous weeks, uh, it's almost like double counting. It's like, you know, it ran up on the basis of the, uh, tax cuts and now it's running up more on the basis of the tax cuts. Um, and the interesting thing is, of course, the tax cuts are, are, t- are taking a hit on gap earnings, but uh, that's, you know, that's not critical. Um, but, uh, you know, one wonders, especially with yields, as we can see moving up the 10-year at 262 um, and uh, pressures on there uh, where the market's getting a little bit ahead of itself. Uh, at the beginning of the year, I called 0 to 10 percent uh you know we've had about almost halfway through there five so far but i'm still calling that and as i say uh, a probably good first half of the year somewhere correction and then um, a kind of evening out towards the end again the two big things are political uncertainties um, that i think are going to multiply through the year uh, plus higher interest rates
2: thanks for the insights professor that's great don Matt, do you guys have any uh, questions for the professor?
3: Professor, any any uh, thoughts on inflation in coming year, two thousand eighteen? Everyone's predicting rates going up for the last seven or eight years.
1: Um, that's true. We, you know, now you know the new natural rate. You know, we talked about the new normal, the new neutral. Where's the new rate of in, on unemployment where things are going to catch on? And people are talking about three and a half percent, perhaps. Uh, which is about the lowest we've ever gone in post-war periods without this, the cycle turning. Um, that would be reached at the end of the summer if we can key, if we uh, stay at uh, w- at uh, payroll gains of around two hundred thousand a year. Now, clearly, if there's a slowdown or there's some wonderful developments on the participation rate, where people who had dropped out of the labor force uh, are some uh, coming back into the labor force, that would be great developments that would obviously push back any so-called day of a reckoning, uh, there. Um, but, uh, absent, uh, absent that by the end of the summer, you're going to hit three and a half. And, um, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to predict that that wouldn't bring some pressures on, on, uh, on labor shortages. But right now, I mean, the market, I mean, the dollar down is great, obviously for international stocks, particularly the S and P stocks. I mean, and, and mean that, that, that's a very positive there. And the fact that the yields, even though they're creeping up, are still incredibly low, you know, don't make them a, a lot of competition. So, you know, one can say this ball has longer to run, but, um, you know, we're in the later innings.
4: Uh, Professor, this is Don Riley. Uh, just your thoughts on um – you know How many hikes this year from the Fed? Uh, I, I see the, the probabilities of four hikes actually creeping up now, and the, you know, yeah. the high teens, 20%. Uh, what, what are your thoughts yeah. there?
1: Yeah, and I, and I think the Fed itself doesn't really know. They're just going to take it as it comes out. I mean, I, I think as long as the labor market remains strong, uh, stronger than what they think is a normal intake, and the unemployment dips down, they're going to go a quarter of a point every major meeting. And in other words, something has to change. Either some downturn in, in that uh, job growth, or or some bad developments on inflation uh, that co- cause them to actually do more. But I think they're they're they're, they're one they're, they are you know I think thinking of one a quarter as long as the unemployment rate ticks down and payroll stays in the one fifty range uh, plus um, that will be kind of their default. Uh, increase, So I can see, as, you know, as you say, uh, market looks around three to four. Um, but, again, any bad development that, you know, could put a pause on this, uh, certainly they, they, they will go to hold.
2: Thanks for the insights, Professor. That's excellent input. Thank you. And we appreciate your time, and have a great weekend.
1: You too. Talk to you next week. Bye.
2: Thanks. You got it. So, transition back to the studio here, just a reminder, our three guests for the day, we have Ryan Kerlin, who's helped me uh, co-host, we have Don Riley, CIO of Wiley Group, and we have Matt Toppley, the CIO of Fortis Wealth. So, what we're going to do is let's just first uh, have the guests introduce themselves. Don, can you tell us a little about yourself? Yes, I'm uh, with Wiley Group, as you
4: um, already noted, uh, in Conchahacka, PA, we're a registered advisory firm, and... Uh, we specialize in building basically model portfolios for our clients, but we are full service financial planning and uh, holistic services for our clients. Um, and uh, you would put some more background. Yeah, on me you or... know, so
2: you got a pretty exciting background there, Don. Tell us about uh, some of your history right. as a former well, trader I'm, and what have you.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm born and raised in, in just outside of Philadelphia, and uh, coming out of college, I was trading options in college, and I really wanted to get into you know the markets and um, Ended up at the uh, Philadelphia Stock Exchange as a runner, um, and kind of worked my way up to working for the president of the exchange and started trading for him. And um, went through the years uh, trading and and started a specialist operation down there. And then, you know, came to own my own uh, broker dealer firm and specialist operation on the floor. And, and and a lot of that was so we could do proprietary trading too. Um, so a lot of that involved you know back in those days. Um, you know, it was the 80s and the 90s and the tech bubble, and um, it was a very exciting time and, and a great time to be on the floor and actually really miss it, um, but, uh, you know, creative destruction kind of took that all away, and you went from eighth-point spreads and stocks to sixteenths to decimals and high-frequency trading, and Algo's taking all the vague out of the game and uh, kind of had to change the uh, change the course later in life, but uh, well, I guess we'll get a little bit into that a little bit more when we talk about maybe the R A
2: side. Sure, you got it matt transition to you a little bit of background on yourself what you're up to these sure. days
3: uh before anything about me wes i just want to thank you for your service to the country uh if everybody out there should read wes's book Embed uh it's much more important than all the a bunch of us sitting around talking about the stock market today so uh my background uh, i'm a lifelong philadelphian uh grew up in philadelphia six kids in a row house so I'm sitting in the middle of Wharton's campus here right now, thinking this is the greatest country in the world, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, uh, Also a trader, so uh, pure luck. I ended up on a trading desk through a personal connection through my friend Dan McManus got me into trading uh, 20 years ago. I also entered uh, right before the internet bubble really took off, so 1997, I did not know a stock from a bond when I started on the trading desk. Uh, We were so busy, extremely busy trading desk. They said, congratulations, you're a trader about one year in. uh, So we were generating a ton of commissions. Stocks were going 200, 300, 400% up a day. I thought I'd never see anything again in my life like that. And then this year, Bitcoin hits. So uh, it was a tremendous time. And and really, uh, that was my true education in finance. When you're generating $100 million in commissions a year, you get to see every single solitary pitch in the world. Stocks, bonds, equity. international equities, derivatives, everything you can humanly imagine. So uh, that kind of gave me my PhD in financial BS. So uh, when you see every pitch in the world, you kind of try to, along the years, you figure out what what is uh, in the interest in the client and what is in the interest in the people selling the product. So that's how I ended up uh, in the advisor world.
2: I love it. And I'm at
3: Fortis Wealth in King of Prussia, by the way, Uh, family office slash uh, advisor, high net worth advisor. Uh, Really happy to be there and happy to be on the show.
2: Great. And that and that's actually a perfect segue. So you're CIO here at Fortis Wealth. Yep. And one of the burning questions I think a lot of investors have currently, especially since the market's on fire here the past two weeks, yep. is it feels like every single asset is expensive. Mm-hmm. And I know you have a 40-page PowerPoint deck <laughs> on your website about this. Um, <laughs> what are your thoughts on this, and how do people deal with this situation?
3: Yeah, I mean... I, in some sense, uh, you know, there's never a good time to invest in the market. everybody, everybody always thinks it's expensive. Stealing Warren Buffett's line stocks are the only thing in the world that people don't buy when they're on sale. So there's no doubt we're in the later innings of uh, the bull market. Let's talk about equities first. i would I would say we're in later innings of the bull market, but, Three stages of bull market, one's accumulation, one is public participation phase. We definitely are going through and finish the public participation phase. You look at the cash numbers, institutional cash has gone all in, it's at the lowest level it's been in ever, uh, in, or close to the lowest levels ever in the last few months. Uh, you look at Schwab's retail numbers, uh, retail is starting to go all in, but this was the most hated bull market in history for the first six or seven years of our move. So now we're entering the excess phase, and the hard part about the excess phase is it's hard to time the market period or virtually impossible to time the market period, and the excess phases are twice as impossible to time. And it's, you know, even though CAPE ratio, Buffett's uh, GDP ratio, they're really, really expensive. That's true, and they're expensive versus history, but they are not timing mechanisms. Uh, The last 12 months of a bull market on average returns over 21%. Uh, so, stocks are expensive, bonds are extremely expensive. Everybody's been saying bonds have been expensive for eight years. Most people don't realize bonds are in a 35-year bull market and bonds move in giant long cycles like that. So, uh, we try to stay as diversified as humanly possible. We're, we're evidence-based. so. Uh, we remove all the human emotions out of it. Uh, we are combining value and momentum, so we think our portfolios are ready for any market. We do have a tactical part of the portfolio strictly run on based on momentum, where uh, we think we can we can shift to the right sectors when when the uh, recession or whatever generates the next bull market the uh, bear market does happen. Gotcha. So
2: to summarize, stay the course and follow the trend is essentially where you guys
3: are at. Uh, stay the course, but we, we do have a tactical part of the portfolio that'll, that'll be a huge difference. And, and, and I'll give you a perfect example, and we may get into this later. I'm sorry if I'm jumping ahead, but I think U.S. gross stocks are like eight times price-to-book, and international value stocks are at like 1.2 times price-to-book. So last time we had that kind of spread in valuations was 2003. From 2003 to 2007, the S&P returned 63%. Uh, developed international returned 168%, and, and a fund like DFA emerging markets value returned 350%. So there's some reversion to the means that still have to happen. The shift from growth to value is one of them, uh, as well as the shift from U.S. to international
2: that all makes sense and appreciate your insights Don do you have any uh, thoughts on this conundrum that investors face these days yeah i think it's a conundrum for investors i think it's a you know a
4: con- conundrum for asset allocators like ourselves when you when you look around the world and you look at the valuation especially in us equities uh when we're in the upper deciles of historical um Valuations on most metrics. Um, the one metric that you can look at where you can still make you know a decent case for equities here is the uh, equity risk premium. Where you know if interest rates stay where they are, you can still make a, a valid case for. For U.S. equities, but um, if interest rates creep up here, and we're starting to see them creep up um, as the you know unemployment falls, and, and the ten-year and up to, to two point six three right now, which is you know been an area where it hasn't uh, been able to get through for the last three or four years. But if we get through two sixty three uh, on the ten-year here, that could mean that you know rates are, are ready for their next move higher, um, and then you know as the rates move up, that's going to become a challenge for equities. So. Um, you know, how do you, how do you attack that? I mean, recently we, we, we lowered our tactical allocation, uh, to equities to, 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 our strategic target. We were overweight, um, and, you know, talk about maybe a non-consensus view, but, um, that could be, you know, considered by many a non-consensus view, and I had a couple clients give a little pushback on that, but, uh, a lot of clients also were, uh, were happy that we were, you know, focusing on the risks. Um, so. So, you know, if you look at where we are right now and and how far this market's moved it so fast, and you're starting to see some some numbers that, you know, are putting you in rare air. I mean, you know, it's the longest... Period without a three percent correction in U.S. equities, um, and you're very close to getting the longest period uh, without a five percent correction. If you look at the all-world index, uh, longest period in history without a five percent correction. If you look at emerging markets, longest period in history without a ten percent correction. So, you know we're getting stretched uh, in those areas. And then if you look at sentiment, uh, we follow uh, Ned Davis Research, and and we get research, and we're very happy with the, uh, what they provide us. And we look at their statistics on, on investor sentiment right now, and uh, they just had a reading that is the highest reading in 20 years. It's the highest of, of all time in, in, in this sentiment index. And so what you're seeing is that investors are getting very optimistic, and, and typically, you know, your returns are better in equities and when, when sentiment's negative and, and when the economy's struggling. Um, as the economy does better and sentiment gets bullish and you see consumers, consumer sentiment right now is at very high levels, the highest levels we've had in 15, 20 years. Um, Typically, the floor returns for equities are not as good.
5: Yeah, Don. So, so expectations are high, sentiments high. So then, uh, on the fixed income side of things, how do we take that down to a practical level, right? So interest rates are are low. Um, where, how? Uh, do you pick up yield income for your clients right now?
4: yeah, it's, it's 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 like I said that's that's the other difficult part of the conundrum is that as you said, yields are low, but at the same time, if you look at where you receive more yield, such as high yield bonds, corporate bonds, um the spreads there or that, that difference between the, the the premium you're getting paid to invest in these high yield bonds is very low. So it, we're we've backed away uh, in our portfolios we are, and, and are very much underweight high yield here. Uh, because we don't feel you're being rewarded enough for the risk you're taking there, and we feel you're later in the cycle. And, and typically, when high yield breaks, it, you know, high yield bonds act like equities, and when they break, you usually don't get a chance to get out. And and to add on top of that, we don't know what the liquidity is going to be like now with the expansion of ETFs, um, and and how how is this whole world going to the bond world going to face, and, and with the the uh, event of of the banks now that have really shrunk their bond trading desks. Um, you know, th- when the risk-off move comes, it could be quick. So uh, we step back from there um, because we think it's a little riskier.
5: So, so to summarize, out, out of high yield into just safer, Most,
4: mostly investment grade, shorter term corporate, and, and and that's the other thing that you know we, we've waited and we're un, uh, underweight duration here uh, to where we would normally be. Um, and with a shorter term bond, we don't have as much risk uh, if rates, if interest rates do start to creep up. Um, But we do present, you know, it does present, you don't have as much counterbalance if you have a risk off event. So um, all these factors come into when you're looking at the overall portfolio and where are the risks um, in your portfolio.
5: Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that sounds pretty good. And Matt, you were saying you believe international value looks right now like a a strong place to to put your money right now. Sure. Uh, Not to put words in your mouth. But then, and then on the fixed income side for you, what,
3: what do you see there? Yeah, so on the fixed income side, you know, we're really not alpha-seeking on the fixed income side. We, we, we look at fixed income in three ways. In theory, in the, barring the last six or seven years of interest rates going down to zero, you know, we're trying to get a slight yield. We're trying to use it as a cash buffer. But our most important use for fixed income is lowering the overall volatility of the portfolio. So we're not really alpha-seeking in fixed income. As far as where we are getting our clients' income, uh, we go to the real estate world, we, we are a big investor in private real estate. Uh, if you can afford to be li- illiquid, uh, we've, we have done over 40 private real estate deals in the last uh, less than three years, uh, and if they returned half of what they returned over the course of the time we've been doing the deals, they would still crush the bond market. So your trade-off is, you're, tr- you're trading off being a little bit of liquid, so we have to size it correctly, but uh, it's really difficult to get uh, yield in the fixed income world right now, the days of selling your business and putting your money in munis and being able to live passively on the income, they might come back someday, but they're, they're not around now. Yeah. Uh, and I said kiddingly at lunch, and I mean it that you know I've made a career hanging out with people smarter than me. And if Jeremy Grantham is saying the best play by far is emerging market value for the next 10 years, and if research affiliates and all these other people are laying out the 10-year numbers just based on strictly math, uh, they're also coming up with the same thesis, uh we're not big on predictions but the math is telling us right now that uh international value emerging markets value looks better relative to the u.s so that doesn't mean it'll you know return 250 300 percent like i mentioned earlier but on a valuation basis with earnings growing 20 percent in the emerging market world right now uh, and the valuation being in some sense in some some uh, ways one-third uh the valuation of U.S. growth, we think it's a good place to be.
2: So, so Matt, just to bring that down to tactical allocation, So, yeah, w- would your suggestion, question. recommendation be to actually shift portfolios away from yeah. U.S. into emerging international over time or right now?
3: Yeah, so uh, a big differentiator with Fortis is uh, we do use momentum and we use it to rank asset classes also, so if right now U.S stocks are still ranked number one in terms of relative strength momentum uh international equities are ranked number two and have gone from you know five or six in the ranking to number two relatively quickly now the key part is we use momentum because of the timing if you invested strictly on fundamentals you would have went long international two or three years ago and be and it would have really hurt you so uh, we really increased our international valuation last year uh, because of the increase in momentum and i think the big differentiator is we will ramp up a pretty sizable position in our tactical portfolio as opposed to, you know, increasing emerging markets from 3% to 4.5%. We could end up with a portfolios with 30 40% international. Great. Big differentiator, I think, from our competition. Just as a reminder, you're listening to Behind the Markets
2: on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm Wes Gray, sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz, and I've got Ryan Curlin in here from Alpha Architect, co-hosting. We have Don Riley, CIO at The Wiley Group, and we have Matt Topley, CIO at Fortis Wealth. So, Matt, back to you, and I have to give you some props here, but every day I read your Topley's Top Ten and I think it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and my real question is, where the heck do you get the time <laughs> to do
3: this? Like do you have kids and family <laughs> or are you just eat, sleep and drink market data? My kids think I'm a, a freak from outer space because, uh, you know, I go to bed at like 830 and, and I'm up at 430 in the morning, but I probably get that from my dad. But uh, I do it really early in the morning. I started to do it when I was on the trading desk and honestly. Honesty, I mean this, it's been totally humbling to come in and meet somebody like you this, today for lunch and you tell me you read it every day. Some of the people that are on that list now and read it every day, it's been completely humbling. I didn't think that much of it when I first uh, started writing it, uh, but now it's, it's a huge part of what I do and I really love doing it to be honest with you. I uh, got away from it briefly when I left the trading desk and I felt completely out of touch even though I still try to read a lot You know, when, when you write and put it all on paper in the morning. Uh, You really feel like you're on top of things. So it's been uh, a great run, and it keeps increasing, and we'll keep on doing it. But, uh, you know, I have a really good wife that uh, (laughs) lets me go to bed at 830 and disappear into the office for five, six, seven hours at a time on the weekend. So... Uh, and yeah, and my kids think I'm crazy. And, yeah. and
2: it is free. W- where's the best way to access that so yep. other
3: people can enjoy the benefits of your work? Sure, it's absolutely free. www.matttopley.com M-A-T-T-T-O-P-L-E-Y and you can sign up. That's my blog, so it shows up a, a little later in the morning on my blog. Anybody who wants to uh, email me or call our office and go on the email list so you get it earlier in the morning on the email list every day. And out of that... Daily top 10, because that's that's a lot of institutional stuff, and it's a lot of stuff for people in the business. I, I've screened out things and do just a once-a-week Friday top 10 for all high-net-worth investors or all investors, period. That's a lot more, it fits their profile a lot better. So same thing, uh, mtopley at fortis-wealth.com uh, or call Fortis' office, and you can get on either letter, the daily letter or the... Friday Letter, or go to www.matttoppley.com. I feel a little bit like Howard Stern now, p- pitching my... Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> hey, my it, it is <laughs> a great service. And uh, Hey, Matt, I'm
4: a subscriber, too. And, uh, <laughs> I, I always wonder, does this guy ever go on vacation? Because, you know, it pops up on the weekends, and it pops up... Uh, I don't know, yeah, all, well, all hours of the
2: day. I was yeah. thinking nowadays with machine learning and AI, maybe he was like a Google programmer
3: or something. <laughs> I was
2: like, how, how does a human being actually produce this?
3: Uh, I'm definitely not a Google programmer because if you don't see it in the morning, it's because I have no IT skills whatsoever. So if anything goes wrong, uh, I usually just curse and like throw something at the screen because I wouldn't even remotely know how to fix it. So only if I have IT issues, you won't see it. <laughs> Don, back, a question for you. What uh, so what what's your number one
5: contrarian view right now
4: i guess my my number one contrarian view may be you know that whole high yield space where i think if you look around most people think it still has some some time to go and and it very well may but you know for us um it it, you know we're looking at it from an overall risk standpoint in our portfolios and and we feel we have enough equity risk and we don't need any more equity like uh, risk in there so i I think that would be a non-consensus view for us um, another place that we've you know, really started cutting back here is on REITs. We've always had a, a dedicated asset allocation to real estate investment trusts. Um, unlike Matt, where Matt you know, has, can do the private real estate, our clients need the liquidity. Um, and, and to get that liquidity, we use um, real estate tr- uh, trust uh, ETFs. And uh, we, we began to cut back on those about a year and a half ago. Um, when we started to see global growth pick up on momentum, and we thought that you know that rates would start to create a, a headwind for REITs, um, and um, we're we're in a reduced position in REITs right now. But we continue to watch that sector, and we continue to watch what um, you've seen. You know, pretty major underperformance by REITs so far since the beginning of the year. Uh, pro- you're probably about um, you know 10 percent difference between the S and P and the and the REIT index right now, in terms of. Um, performance. And, uh, you know, so we're watching, like I said, we're watching the tenure closely, and we may even further reduce REITs.
5: Yeah, and I, I thought it was an interesting thing you said before we came in. When you're looking at building your portfolios, most most uh, ETFs you're using already have exposure to the REIT sector, right? So everybody kind of thinks about when you're building an ETF portfolio, REIT should be a standalone asset class, and, and it certainly can be, right? You own a standalone sure. REIT ETF or REIT mutual fund. Um, but but the uh, but but for you, you you view that, well, we already have exposure there, so let's let's well, remove this. Well, that's true. Right?
4: That's true, Ryan. And you know, within the portfolio itself, there are, there is already real estate exposure. Um, the REITs we use as an alternative uh, an alternative asset class for a little uncorrelation, but you also, as I said, you have to manage that risk and, and look at that risk closely and and how is that mitigated throughout your whole portfolio?
2: Thank, thanks, Don. Thanks, uh, Ryan. So stay tuned, everyone. We're going to continue this discussion after a short break. Uh, and again, I'm Wes Gray, and you're listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM XM 111. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. I'm Wes Gray sitting in for Jeremy Schwartz today. My guests are Don Riley, CIO at the Wiley Group, and Matt Topley, CIO at Fortis Wealth. Joining me in our discussion is Ryan Kerlin, who works with me at Alpha Architect. So, gentlemen, we want to transition from discussing portfolio allocations and where markets are going and how to position it, and talk more about the advisory business. Um, There's a lot of disruption going on in the space, and what better than to have two CIOs of investment advisors here to discuss the topic. Um, So to begin, Don, you just want to talk about how you got into the business and built your practice?
4: Yeah, sure, Wes. love to. you know, I, going back to earlier in this segment when we talked about, it, I was down to the Philadelphia Stock Exchange for for 20 years, and um, as we got past 2000 and 2001, the business really started to change, and and basically, you know, with the electronics uh, exchanges were basically becoming a thing of the past, and all the regional ex- exchanges at that time began shutting down, and the Philadelphia Exchange closed its equity floor in, in 2004. Um, it still had like a shell that it took out and basically traded upstairs with that. But uh, I closed down my operation on the floor in, in 2004 and, and went off to a joint back office at Merrill Lynch and started just trading every day because um, there was still enough VIG for, you know, for me to make money and trade, but uh, not to support a firm. Um, and But what you found was every year, you know, the advantages were getting less and less as, as, as algos came along and, and robotized trading. Uh, it really made it difficult. So um, in 2008, I made a decision to start an RIA. Um, I had you know, always traded ETFs and, and knew the ETF story. Um, I was on the floor in Philadelphia when the first ETF the spider started trading um, and started to build portfolios with ETFs and opened my RIA in 2008. Um, and in 2012, I, uh, I merged with my partner, Jim Wiley, who, who pulled a team out of Morgan Stanley. Um, and Jim came over to Concha Hawk and opened up a, a team there. And, um, and part of the team had a falling out, and it just opened a door, which, uh, which was, which was a, a great thing for me because it's very difficult running an RA by yourself. Um, I, you know, I started to hire some financial planners, and, but you know, you're wearing all the hats. And, and he already had a team in place. He had a, a large pool of assets already to manage. Um, and, and it was a very good fit. We were both doing the same investment style, so um, merged in with Jim in 2012 and, and, and have been doing this ever since.
2: That's great. Matt, what's, what's your story? What was your adventure to the advisor space?
3: Yeah, so uh, Don and I have very similar backgrounds. I was also uh, still on the trading desk. Uh, Derek Bowles, our CEO at Fortis Wealth, and I were personal friends. Uh, Derek was spinning uh, out of a larger company at the time, spinning a family wealth services business out of a larger company at the time. Uh, family wealth services for people who don't know out there is bill paying tax accounting, trust and estate, where concierge service really taking care of families entire lives, but they didn't have an investment, uh, arm yet. Uh, so it was kind of the perfect fit. I went over phase one of the plan was to convert the current family office clients over to the investment process. Uh, again getting back to my trading days that was an education on on wall street and the investment world uh i was shocked after the advent of etfs and everything the way some of the portfolios were invested extremely high fee products so we were able to convert the families over to much lower fee way better tax efficiency really do a great job of saving them a lot of money that was first phase of the plan well, We, we have uh, three hundred over $300 million in a- AUM right now. Uh, now we're in the second phase of the plan, which is bringing in more families and growing the firm. It's been a lot of fun. I think we have some big differentiators when you combine the 100-year history of our firm doing family office services with now the investment advisor part. Uh, I think it's big differentiator, and I think it's where the business is going as well.
2: It's interesting that both you guys have uh, trading backgrounds. Do you feel like that gives you kind of an edge? Because I know traders are... Like very cognizant of competition and how someone's trying to always beat you, so yeah. you're less kind of willing to say yes to things. Do you? What do you? How does your background actually support
3: your, you know, role as an advisor? Yeah, this is Matt. I'm not really that competitive, so uh, that's that's a joke. Uh, so, you know, it's funny. Uh, it's a blessing and a curse because you learn through errors trading. Uh, We learned the hard way. I'm sure Don would say the same thing, and we try to get that across to our investors. I'll give you some scary statistics that we we show everybody when they come into our office. In the last 70 years, the S&P's had 12, 20% corrections. Uh, Can anybody take a wild guess how much the S&P is up in those 70 years with those 12, 20% corrections? Anybody want to take a guess? Like per year? No, total. A a lot? Yeah. (laughs) 15,000%. So... 12, 20% corrections in the last 12 years, the market's up 15,000%. So the market really, really works. Getting back to we're lucky to be in this great country. But the sad part of that story is if you look at the average retail's investor return over a 20-year period and you line up all the asset classes you can humanly imagine, stocks, bonds, energy, you, we show them the chart. The average investor's returning a little bit over inflation. Their average return is like 2.5%. So... We have these great returns produced by our great open markets, and your average investor is not participating in that, those returns, and uh, it really kind of pisses us off. So we, we try to really control people's emotions and let them uh, participate. Where, where was I going with this? We're a big fan of Daniel Kahneman, and one of Daniel Kahneman's uh, theses is people sitting in front of it. In the business, every day are some of the worst investors in the world because your const- your mind's constantly going. You're constantly looking at it. So we really adopt it. A lot of what Wes does uh, at Alpha Architects, you know, we try to remove the emotions completely out of the process, uh, be evidence based, and not be trying to make not make too many decisions every day.
2: Makes sense, Don. In, in your trading background, how does that help you as an advisor? Yeah,
4: I, I think a lot along uh, uh, what Matt says, and, and if you talk about trading, you're thinking. At least what we did or what I did on the floor was very short-term oriented, and you know, so you with asset management, asset management is much longer-term oriented. Um, the good thing about the trading background was it, it, it made me very familiar with technicals. Where I was a big technical trader, um, and and using technicals can really help in when it comes to you know tactical decisions. Uh, fundamentals are great when evaluations are great, but um, te- technicals, including um, sentiment including momentum including trend and and, and these type of things are, are things we all use today uh, when we're looking at the you know to make tactical decisions on these asset classes
3: yeah so wes I mean you've mentioned in your book you know humans are flawed decision makers under distress well in the trading days uh, you had a lot of times you're under distress uh, so the key was to be calm but uh, Don made a great point about now we're asset allocators and a lot of our clients and May, may be different. Uh, a lot of them, though, already made money or already had a liquidity event. Certainly not all of them, but a lot of them. And they're more worried about protecting their money than uh, taking short-term risk or trading in a day. I mean, that's the last thing uh, we want them to do and it's the last thing they're worried about.
5: Yeah, yeah. makes well, sense. So <clears throat> a trend we've seen over the last decade or so has been more and more RIAs or, um, yeah, registered investment advisors uh, popping up all around the country. Um, and for... Uh, individuals moving away from uh, being associated with the banks, uh, wirehouse financial advisors. Um, what what's driving that trend? Clearly, you guys are both part
3: of that trend. And then, uh, and and what what's the why? Want me to take that, or I'll, I'll, I'll go for sure. So uh, I spent a, a year uh, looking at everything in finance before I made the decision to uh, move to the family wealth world. Uh, Independent Advisor Space slash Family Wealth World, will throw the two together, the fastest, party, fastest growing parts of finance. I personally only think it's in the fourth or fifth inning. Uh, we're a really young country. There's going to be a lot of wealth transferred. Uh, the, the things that gave banks a huge advantage, and there's some very good teams at banks. I want to bash banks or brokers, but the things that gave them a huge advantage are not, they don't have that advantage anymore. With the advent of technology uh, and the advent of ETFs, Uh, We have access on the independent advisor side to things that previously you couldn't access unless you were on a sophisticated Wall Street trading desk. But technology is having a massive impact on the advisor broker world the same way it's having a massive impact on every other business out there, right? People are being replaced with technology. So now it's become economies of scale in the advisor world too, but I really think we're still in the fourth or fifth inning of growth of independent advisors, and I think we're only in the third or fourth inning of growth of family wealth offices. So what
5: what what specifically? What what is you know could an advisor not do ten
3: years ago that now now yeah. uh, an advisor can do that? That's a lot enabling these economies of scale. Sure, great question. So if if I wanted to hedge the Japanese currency and get long uh, equities in Japan, even three or four years ago, maybe five years ago, I don't know if my timing's exact. If I was on a trading desk back when I was trading, I would have to talk to three or four different trading desks to execute that trade. So you'd have to talk to two currency desks, two equity desks, right? Now I can go online at Schwab, point and click, hedge to equity Japan, and get long equities in Japan, hedge to currency, and one ETF for 10 basis points. Takes me about 30 seconds. It's powerful. It's the power,
5: so, yeah, power of ETFs. Don, Don, what about you?
4: I I think when, you're, when you when you talk about the the broker dealer side, uh, a lot of times you you know the when you look at the RA space, RAs are act as fiduciaries, and I think that draws a lot of uh, investors to to the RA space. A- and we're not just investment focused either. It's a it's a holistic offering. So when a client comes to us, it's it's about planning. It's about how these investments fit into the plan, um, and then all the auxiliary um, things that go along with that, whether it be um, Roth conversions and tax-efficient investing, um, Social Security, long-term health care, um, insurance if it's needed. But, you know, you act as a fiduciary, and, and you get to oversee all this to make sure that the client is put in the best position. So I think, you know, that has made it. But, you know, I think we talked about this earlier where the IRA space still is very fragmented. Um, you have a lot of small IRAs, and, and what is this going to look like over the next five or ten years? Are mm-hmm. um, the custodians going to come in and provide... Uh, the REAs with with more and more technology uh, to get economies of scale or um, Are we going to continue to see more and more roll-ups of, uh, of RIA firms into bigger regional RIAs?
3: Yeah, so uh, Don makes a a great point about holistic services So I think getting back to our hundred years a hundred year history as a family wealth office uh, We have huge differentiation there. So we we have an equation We use family office equals investment consulting plus advanced planning plus relationship management uh, so investment consulting—that's what 100% of our competitors do. Some people do it better than others. That's your asset allocation, your investing in your assets. We differentiate ourselves pretty big on the advanced planning side. So there's a couple different components under advanced planning: uh, wealth enhancement, which is increasing your cash flow. So we're constantly trying to lower your taxes and increase your cash flow. We have accountants, CPAs in house, and then we have product where it's focused completely on passive tax-efficient income, like our real estate. Uh, private offerings then we have wealth transfer which all your trust and estate and will documents Uh, most people it's transactional with a trust and estate lawyer they execute they don't talk to the trust and estate lawyer for 15 years when their lives are changing dramatically every year especially business owners they execute a trust and estate documents their revenues are a million now they have a 20 million dollar business and their life's life's completely changed and they're not reviewing the documents the next component is wealth protection so all your insurance needs, we're living in a dangerous world, floods, cybersecurity, we consult on all your insurance needs. Also charitable giving. So uh, what's the best vehicle to do your charitable giving in? Uh, how do you get the most tax-efficient uh, leverage in your charitable giving? And more importantly, and I'll finish on this point, I not want to take too much time, is relationship management become, we become the general manager of that family's com- uh, total financial life. So uh, most people tell us Their investment advisor's telling them one thing, their insurance person's telling them something else, their uh, accountants telling them, hold on, don't do either one of those things, and then their lawyer's giving them different advice. So we kind of become the general manager of all those relationships. It especially works well with busy entrepreneurs because uh, basically uh, we help entrepreneurs make smart decisions about their money so they can go uh, be busy uh, increasing their revenues in their business. Thanks, Matt. Uh, just a reminder
2: uh, to the listeners out there, you're listening to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. I'm your host, Wes Gray, joined by my guest, Matt Topley, CIO of Fortis Wealth, and our other guest, Don Riley, CIO of Wiley Group. Yeah, so um, covering why
5: the why of RAs are growing so quickly. Uh, a big, big other discussion point. Uh, you guys are talking about the technology of RAs increasing. What, what do you think about the the digital RA's out there?
4: Uh, I, well, I'll take a, a shot at that one, Ryan. Um, in terms of you know the robo advisors, I think they're I think they're great, and I think they serve a great purpose uh, for for a number of investors. Um, you know, for our clients that that are majority of our clients are, are nearing or approaching retirement, and and they've already, you know, accumulated a large pool of assets, and a lot of times, as as Matt said, they have a liquidity event, and whether it's, you know, for some clients it may be selling a business, for other clients it may be um, coming out of a of a corporate job and, and rolling over a pension or a four hundred one k. But it, it's still liquidity, and how am I going to manage this money going forward? And and for those investors that they need a lot more guidance than just I'm going to throw this all on a robo and and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's not just. Um, th- that the robo um, can't serve them well on the investment side, but it's also who's going to be there to you know to guide them through this. Who's going to make sure that you know they answered the five questions on the robo site, but you know are there enough questions that really got an idea of their risk tolerance? And who's going to hold their hand when you know when when the market hits the skids and um, really starts going down hard? So I think we we add a lot on the behavioral side, and then as I said, getting back to that whole holistic piece. And, and all the in all those areas that we provide guidance um, it all has to be a big picture yeah so, so something I think
5: they, they teach in business school is there's three things a, a firm can do to succeed you can either you can either be the low cost leader in the industry you can be the high uh, the great service leader or you, or you can provide the best product aka provide the most value to a client so for example Walmart right they're the low cost leader mm-hmm. and they have, they have to provide good enough service, though, so people come back to the stores. Uh, Ritz-Carlton and Mercedes-Benz, they're the uh, product leader and the service leader, but they can't also be the low-cost leader, nor do they want to be. So, so uh, Matt, where, where, where do you see yourself fitting in within that framework?
3: Yeah, uh, so back to that little equation I gave you, we're, we're definitely not in the low-cost leader world. We're definitely, although we have a couple products, uh, we have a couple of funds on Portfolio Manager on, well, that is not a focus, of the, that's not the main focus of the business either. I think if you're in a service business, period, any service business, it's all about you know, the quality of your employees and the quality of, of what you're offering. So that's kind of high level. But when you see someone like Vanguard, uh, who's bigger than the Bank of Japan now and the creators of passive investing, uh, and the biggest business line they're building out right now is human advisors. And they put out a white paper where they said a good advisor good advisor should add 3% to your total returns, uh, which is a ton, if you've met people can imagine compounding over time. So uh, you can't control – your job is to co- help your client with human behavior and controlling human behavior and psychology and making bad decisions, getting back to that uh, analogy I had earlier about the market being up 15,000% in the last seventy years and most uh, investors not participating in that. So it's all – Human behavior does not change. I'm a fan of the robos. I think they're a great thing. They haven't gone through a bull market yet. Uh, we'll see how they do in a, in a bear market. I'm sorry, they haven't gone through a bear market yet, so we'll see how they do in a bear market. But we are definitely a firm that's working with a small amount of families, trying to have a big impact, and we're, we're advising them on their entire financial lives, not just through their asset allocation in the market.
2: That, that makes sense, Matt. Now, Don, I'm going to give you the hard one. They say uh, making predictions is hard, especially about the future. Um, so human advisors, obviously, are going to be more expensive than digital advice. Sure. But to Matt's point, there's this whole behavior element. What are your thoughts on the probability or chances of humans being replaced for that that behavioral maintenance component of advising?
4: Well, uh, that's a very good question, Wes. And, you know, at the speed that AI is moving now... I guess nothing would surprise me at some point, um, but I, I think from the fact of that whole human interaction, I just don't see that going away in the, in the next 10 or 20 years, at least. Um, I think the clients, or at least our clients, really appreciate that human interaction. And even you know to the, to the respect that we can do, and we do a lot of meetings now by WebEx, I think it just feels like our clients get so much more out of that face-to-face meeting. So, um, and, and believe me, there's a great case for Webex. I have a lot of clients that are retired down in Florida or live in, in different states now. And, and we, you know, we have great meetings on Webex. But when they come in or when they're at from, from out of town and they visit, it may only be one every three years. But when you sit down and really have that face-to-face, it seems you, you get so much more out of it. And, and things come up that just don't come up on, on the Webex or what you might get with a robot. So I don't know what your th- thoughts on that are, yeah, Matt.
3: Yeah, but... I, I think I agree. AI is incredible. I think there's more to come. I think technology is a huge component of our business like any other business. But at the end of the day, uh, at least what we see when people come into the office, uh, a lot of them are very disorganized financially. There's a lot of things, complex decisions about their future, of their finances, that are outside of just an asset allocation that have a bigger impact than making a couple changes in an asset allocation but I'll, I'll give you a perfect example of will ai take over everything i also have investors that are in growth mode that have excess cash flow every month i have them dollar cost averaging as much as they can being disciplined automating it three out of four of them have stopped dollar cost averaging against my advice already because they told me the market's too expensive so uh no investment experience at all Uh, they do have a TV and a computer though. So they've, they, uh, have decided that they don't want a dollar cost average anymore because the market's too expensive and they do have a human person giving them personal financial advice. (laughs) So human behavior never changes. Politics change, technology changes, human behavior never changes. Well, Okay. Matt, you,
2: why would you dollar cost average when you can buy Bitcoin? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Seriously, <laughs>
4: Wes, I was already creative, destructive out of out of one job on the on the floor exchange. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised, I guess, in my lifetime if I get um, technology takes another job from me.
3: We were beating ourselves up at the office trying to figure out what will the millennial bubble be? What will it be? What will it be? Will it be? This was about a year ago, and and income was Bitcoin. Uh, so yeah,
4: and then the pot stocks.
3: Yeah,
5: yeah, I mean, that, yeah. I, I was. Kidding around with Wes uh, in the office, and Wes was looking. He goes, "Oh my god, ten percent moved down in Bitcoin. That's insane!" <laughs> I was like, "Wes, this is like, this yeah. is just..." Well, well,
4: you know, when your twenty-six-year-old comes home and says, "Dad, my son just, or, or my friend just made a ton of money in pod stocks," he goes, "I should be buying these. That you know, it's probably you know yeah. getting a little frothy."
5: Yeah. yeah. But uh, so, Matt, I guess, what what's what's the what's the best part about about being an RIA?
3: Uh, the best part about being an RA is definitely helping helping people. I really mean that. I, I, a lot of people uh, are extremely busy, whether it's dual income households, which obviously is, is commonplace right now, or it's a busy entrepreneur that they want someone they can trust to help them make every financial decision. Uh, they're busy running 24-70, running businesses, raising children and they need someone who they trust to take care of these things. I'll give you a perfect example of high net worth clients we brought in the last couple of years of buying sure homes. We took care of everything, reviewed the condo documents, found them the financing, everything you can imagine around around buying sure homes. We took care of everything. They just showed up at settlement so that's where the business is going uh... as as families get busier and busier uh, you think about fees making one wrong decision on a large portfolio versus you know a seventy five basis point fee it's not even close
2: uh... just to reset here i'm i'm Wes grant you're listening to behind the markets on sirius xm one eleven and the guests i have today are two cios chief investment officers one is don riley and the other is matt topley um, so gents, we have a few minutes here uh, left just Something that uh, we talked about before we uh, came to studio here is about the CIO group, which I thought was a really interesting, innovative concept. Don, do you mind uh, just sharing what that's all about and how you guys started that? Sure. Um, we have a, a CIO group that we we put together,
4: uh, probably started about four years ago, Wes, and, and my partner and I were, you know, sitting in the office and, and, and talking about asset allocation, and we're, you know, he was saying, well, what are these other guys thinking? And I said, yeah, you know, I kind of missed that, you know, when I was on the, when I was on the floor of the exchange, I had all these um, co-traders and, and other investment firms to you know to push back off of. It. And don't get me wrong, we have we we purchase a lot of outside research. We have research from the you know the best firms on the street. But uh, to talk to your peers and and to get together and 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 see how they are reading you know and 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 dressing the same asset classes that you are, it, it's great. And um, so we. Went out and just started asking. Hey, would you you know, like to be part of this networking group? And and it's it's just grown and grown. So now we have about seventeen or twenty fellows on the list. Um, and we meet quarterly and we get together. And it's uh, you know I've always been a big fan of Barron's Roundtable and we kind of created our own Barron's Roundtable and um, we meet at nine or eight o'clock in the morning and. Meet for about an hour, but it's uh, it's really great, and everyone seems to seems to enjoy it. Uh, yeah. And and Matt happens to be on that CIO group, and I didn't even know Matt was going to be on the show today. I looked, and I wondered "Who the other advisor was?" And it just yeah. happened to be Matt. So it's just, yeah. it's a small world, but there's a lot of uh, you know there's a, there's a big section of, of of wealth outside west of Pennsylvania or west of Philadelphia right here, and there's a lot of RA firms, and so we have a really good pool of of um, of investment managers to you know to put together. So it really has worked yeah. well.
3: It's, it's, it's been awesome, and, and Don did, did a great job of putting it together. Don and I did determine at lunchtime out there uh, for all you traders out there that he did front-run my orders on the Philadelphia <laughs> floor when I was an upside, upstairs trader, so a few traders out there. But uh, just like any uh, business, talking to other people in the business community, but that's an especially great uh, group because uh, I think there's a lot of smart people in the group. Because of that, we get a lot of good speakers to come in and then we all talk about how business is going and and what we're doing differently. It's it's really been intellectually an awesome thing to be involved in. It's a
4: really uh, eclectic group too. It's, you know, you have firms that are just doing stock picking. You have firms, we have, uh, you know, we have hedge funds. We have, um, you know, firms that are very technical and tactical and firms that are very strategic, so it, it really works well. Yep.
2: Yeah, makes sense. All right, gentlemen. You ready for the hardest question of the day? Oh, Jesus. What is going to be the score on the Eagles Vikings game on Sunday?
5: Here we go. Uh, Don, going first, yeah, I'll go, I'll, first? I'll
4: go I'll go 23 Eagles, 21 Minnesota. Three touchdowns and a safety.
3: I like it, safety. Matt. I'm going to go 7-6 Eagles. Wow, Man, defensive. defensive battle uh brett Selleck catches one in the back of the end zone to win the game because that's my wife's favorite player so she's always yelling throw it to brett brett selick that's the joke in the house so seven six eagles
5: bold T- ryan 28 17 eagles it won't it won't be close
2: nice. wow that's a uh that's a bold guess i'm a cowboys fan so uh <laughs> no calling in no discussion but, but i am going for eagles this week or my wife will uh kill me um so anyhow, that was a great show. Ryan, thanks for uh, co-hosting. Don, Matt, thank you for coming in today. also like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, and our sound engineer, Daniel Bruno. And if you had any questions about something you heard on today's show, feel free to reach out on Twitter at bizradio111. You can hit me at Alpha Architect. And I think Don and uh, Matt, you guys have Twitter handles? That's- I
3: think I'm at Matt Topley, but I'm not 100% sure. So stick with the www.matttopley.com and then... The Twitter handle will be on there. You got it. Thanks
2: for
0: listening, and fly eagles, fly. Thanks, Wes. Thanks, Wes. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern, on Sirius XM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast.